We are continuing tonight in Revelation and the, the letters to the churches particularly, so we're going to uh, read tonight from chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, beginning from verse 1. So it's Revelation 3 from verse 1. And we read, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to pray tonight that, that we'll be attentive, ready to hear, ready to receive, ready to obey, and if it's needed, ready to repent of anything in our life that that separates us from you. Lord, just speak tonight by the power of your spirit through your word, direct into the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm sure I've, I've mentioned this before that I love kind of detective mystery type fiction. And I think that, that what I, I probably like most about these stories, what attracts me to them, is, is the way that as you read through all sorts of little details kind of add up, combine together to present a picture that eventually helps you to unravel the mystery, at least understand it when it's been unraveled for you. And I think it's that same kind of inclination probably that makes me really enjoy Bible study and then Bible teaching. I love the way that as you kind of dig down into a passage and, and uncover different details as you do so, things that maybe initially seem unrelated and unimportant but then it, there's a point where it all begins to fit together and you then begin to see things in a whole new way the bible comes to life and, and that's really what happened for me again when i looked at the story of the church at sardis and this is what i want to share with you tonight first of all beginning by looking at the background that is at the situation of the church in Sardis. Because you see, until you understand their history and their geography, you will never really understand this church here or what the Lord's saying to them. And the first thing I think we need to know is that Sardis was famous in Greek history and Greek legend as the capital city of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And it was here in this city in the 6th century BC that their most famous King Croesus lived and reigned. Famous 
in the main because the, the kingdom of Lydia and so then the city of Sardis were fantastically wealthy and prosperous to the extent that this king, their king, was reputed at that time to be the richest man in the world. And the saying, you're as rich as Croesus, lives on to some degree right up to this very day. But then you see in, in 546 sorry, BC, his wealth not unexpectedly attracted attention from Cyrus, king of Persia. And so Croesus' kingdom and eventually his capital of Sardis came under attack. But you see, the citizens of Sardis thought they were in an impregnable position. For their city, and, and particularly its fortress, rose 450 metres above the Hermes Valley. It was almost like a, a giant watchtower with its summit surrounded completely almost by precipices so convinced that they were untouchable that they could come to no harm the soldiers of this king offered no resistance whatsoever when cyrus's men began to scale the cliff face under cover of darkness and so ultimately sardis was captured and their story became a greek legend the classic story of pride before a fall, of misplaced trust in reputation and riches and the consequent lack, because of that, of a sense, sense of watchfulness and what this could lead to. You know, the amazing thing is that just over 300 years later, almost exactly the same thing happened again, with sadness falling this time to the armies of Antiochus III of Syria. But you see, as we move on to look at the church here in Sardis, that here, hundreds of years later, the Lord speaks to, we find that really, not surprisingly and not unusually, that the personality of the city in which it is situated seems to have rubbed off on this church. For they too, apparently, are prosperous. They too have a a reputation for being a church that's alive, being a church that's doing the work of God. But their trust in this, their complacency, is also misplaced. For this is the Lord's judgment of them in verse 1. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. But why does the the Lord judged this church so harshly. And, and why is there this seemingly gaping chasm between their opinion of themselves, seemingly it would seem their, their fellow citizens' opinion of them, and the Lord's opinion of them? Well, you know, what, what, what's interesting, I think gives us a clue if you look, is that out of the seven churches in Revelation, only this church and the church at Laodicea were not enduring any persecution. And so as one writer concludes and says of this church at Sardis that they were the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. You see, it would seem that they were doing the nice things, the things that made people think what lovely people these Christians are, but that these same Christians 
We're not prepared to stand up for their faith when that may involve a cost to them. So if they saw things in their society that they knew were an offence to God, but if they spoke out against them would bring the wrath of their neighbours on their head, well, they kept their mouths shut. Or if they had an opportunity to, to speak out for Jesus, but knew that to do so might cost them a friend, then they kept and so the gospel, because of their compromise, the gospel had lost its power, had lost its offensiveness. Because there wasn't anything about them that made people in any way aware of the holiness and the glory of God and of the comparative sinfulness of their lives. So you see, this church, by taking care not to offend this world and its standards, its interests, had become absorbed into the world. And as they did that, they in the process lost the reality and were unable to bring any kind of sense of the presence of God. You see, they're a bit like those animals that you sometimes see in, in museums. You know, they're, they're carefully posed. And so for a, a moment when you first see them, they can initially look natural, look lively, and even at times frightening until you look into their eyes. The eyes that are, are the source of life, where, where life usually expresses itself. And you see, in fact, they are dead. This was a situation of the church at Sardis. They seem to be alive, but in fact, they were dead. It wasn't yet obvious outwardly. Their numbers hadn't dwindled. They weren't a poor congregation. They hadn't, as other churches mentioned in these early chapters of Revelation, been ravaged by heresy or by false teaching and persecution. Now, this was a seemingly lively, friendly, active church, a church at ease with itself. But what they didn't know was that all their life was a sham and that their peace was the peace of the graveyard. For because they had lost their heart for God, because they'd lost their hunger and desire for his glory and the knowledge of him, so they cut themselves off from the flow of God's life and were perilously close, perilously close to being truly spiritual dead for let's make it clear let's be clearer that while for a church for christians to seek to live in peace isn't of course wrong that's not wrong i mean jesus in matthew 5 9, he produced a blessing on peacemakers blessed be the peacemakers and paul for example in romans 12 18 he urged the christians at rome and through them all christians through history that if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So yes, Christians, above all people, should seek to live at peace, seek to live in harmony with their neighbours, should never seek to be troublemakers or peace breakers. However, for the Christian and for the Christian community, it can never be peace at any price. So if the price of peace is staying silent when God's name is dishonoured 
or when people made in his image are treated like things or even worse, if that is the price of peace, then it's a price that no faithful Christian or church should ever be willing to pay. But let's not fool ourselves here that the situation at Sardis is in some way unique to them or that this is a problem that maybe died out in the early church, this problem of, of churches that appear to be alive, alive, in fact being dead. No, I don't think it is. This is a problem that's still very much around today and, and often is, is much harder to, to discern, to spot that than we would imagine. For over the years I've been involved to, to one degree or another, I would say with a fair number of churches at different times, and some do appear to be lively. In fact, there are times when their activity reaches a level that can only be described as frantic. There are churches like that where there's always something going on. There's always something happening or about to happen. But then you see, as you get to, to know a church, and you get to get under the surface of what's going on, you find that a lot of the activity doesn't actually serve any real spiritual purpose. And there's, there's no thought behind it of reaching the lost, no real thought of building up the church, no real thought of serving the needy in Christ's name. Sometimes I think you discover that the only real purpose all their activity actually achieves is that it makes them so busy that it leaves them next to no time to do the things that God actually wants his people to do. And you're certainly, I fear that there might be times when that's the secret, hidden, even unconscious reason for a lot of this. People keep themselves busy doing things that are well within their reach because they don't want to think, they don't want to challenge, and they don't want to go on to do the things God might really want them to do. Now, happily, of course, that there are churches that are lively and active because they, they really are going on with the Lord. They, their business really is a sign of a real, true spiritual life. And, of course, there are those slow, quiet churches that, that really are as spiritually dead as physically they might, they might appear to be. But, you know, I believe that there are other churches, so to say this, who maybe outwardly appear to be quiet and still. Who maybe some people looking on would be inclined to, to write off because they aren't up to date with all the, the latest developments and fashions and technology and music and worship, etc. Churches who don't have a calendar full of ministries and events. And yet, you know, sometimes you find that behind that comparative stillness, there's a wonderful depth and dimension of spiritual life. There's a real degree of insight and spiritual maturity. So suppose I learned some time ago that you cannot judge where a church is in terms of their spiritual life by looking at their weekly calendar or by listening to the noise level of their Sunday worship. You've got to probe a good bit deeper than that. And Stephen Travis, in his excellent book on the, the churches of of revelation he gives what i think is a, a pretty perceptive checklist of some of the different signs that might show when a church is veering towards spiritual death despite maybe how lively on the surface their church life 
might appear to be. Here's just a, a few of them. He says, a church today is in danger of death when its members bask in their past reputation rather than being open to God's leading now. When they're more concerned about rules and traditions than about love for Jesus. When they cease to believe that a creative God may have new things to teach them, new tasks for them to do, new directions for them to take. When they have not learned that there can be no discipleship where there is no denial of self taking up the cross and following in the footsteps of Jesus. When they are so busy with church activities that they have no time to get close to their neighbours or to be involved in service in their local community. When they value decency and order in worship more highly than the disturbance of the Holy Spirit. When they regard their church as an unchanging haven of security in a constantly changing world rather than as a base from which to respond to the challenges of the world. You know, it's scary, isn't it? How the situation of this church in Sardis has such frightening parallels and reverberations for so many churches today, right up to date. But of course, the Lord doesn't leave his people in a situation like this because he loves us far too much. So there's also a message here for the church in Sardis. And it's just about the hardest message that's given to any of the churches in Revelation. Because while in the earlier messages in, in this section of Scripture, the Lord has given the good news before bringing the bad the church must face up to, yet here for this church, there's no such gentle build-up and it's all announced by, by the words, wake up. And those words surely designed to get the attention of a church, remember, situated in a city that twice before had been taken by enemies because they'd been asleep. So let's look at the, the message here. The, the message given here to, to two different groups within the church. First, the message to the sleepy majority. And this is the group whose, whose deeds are mentioned. <coughs> in verse 1 and who are told in verse 2 that you have not been found complete in the sight of my God your deeds have not been found complete in the sight of my God now in Revelation 2.19 there we're told of the deeds which actually do find approval in the eyes of God and we're told that they are love faith service and perseverance so love for God, believers, and the world. Faith in God, service towards man, and perseverance, keeping on going in the face of all the obstacles thrown up by the world. But you know what I find really frightening here? Is that these sleepy Christians of Sardis are not condemned because they don't have these qualities. No, they are condemned because they begin with them but never bring things to completion. 
They're condemned because they're half-hearted, because they're easily put off. They're condemned because they give in at the first sign of struggle, trouble, or opposition. But they're told still that there is hope. They're told that they can, verse 2, strengthen what remains and is about to die. How can this be done? Well, verse 3, if they remember, therefore, what they have received and heard, obey and repent. So you see, if they, if we, if any church is to make a fresh start, first, we have to remember. We've got to remember what we received and have. That is, we've got to remember the basic message of the gospel, the message of God's glorious love for us and of the kind of response of love, the commitment to a dedicated, holy living. That's the only worthy response we can ever give in return. Then, they have to obey. That is, it's not enough to only remember. We can't stop just by knowing what the Word of God says and requires, just kind of bring it to mind. That's not enough. No, we've also, they've also got to get down to doing it, what God's Word demands, to obeying, no matter what the cost, to themselves. And then they have to repent. That is, before they can go from the present into the future, they have to deal with the past. That's true for us all. They have to deal with any sin in the past that needs cleansing and forgiveness from God. And also, as well as that, they have to deal with anything in their present life and lifestyle that would hinder a work of God in them. They have to deal with that in their present, here and now, that is sin, if they're going to really be restored as a fellowship. To real spiritual life. But there's not only a message here for the sleepy majority in Sardis, there's also a message for the faithful few. That is here in these verses, they are given three very distinct promises. First in verse 4 and 5, a promise of victory. It says they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy he who overcomes, like them, will be dressed in white. Now, you see, the significance, I believe, of this is that the citizens of Rome lined its streets, dressed in pure white togas, whenever they were welcoming back a victorious general and his army. The general and his army would parade through the streets and lined along that street, all the great and good of Rome would be there in their pure white and the point that, that this being made wouldn't be lost, I believe, on the citizens of Tardis, who in their history had known so much of defeat. That is that many of them, because of their lifestyle, because of a lack of attention to their spiritual life, because of lack of concern for the glory of God, many of them were going to be totally unprepared for the coming of Jesus, for their victorious general, for their all-conquering king. But that when he comes, the faithful few will walk with him in trial. That's God's promise. Second, there's also a promise of security, grounded in what it says here about 
the book of life in verse 5 i will never blot out his name from the book of life now this obviously ties in with a picture the bible presents to us of of the lord keeping a book in which the names of all of his people are inscribed as a sign as a symbol of the security they have in him we find that in Exodus 32, 22, Psalm 69, 78, and many other places. But I think there's probably also a more particular application of this here. For you see, in Jewish synagogue worship, there was included in that worship a prayer for the destruction of all who turned away from traditional Jewish belief and practice. So you see, it may well be that the Jewish synagogue in Tarvis that they were taking off the register of their synagogue any Jews who converted to Christ. Now you see, because of this, as a result of this, because they were no longer then part of an officially recognised, sanctioned uh, religion that the Roman Empire gave special privileges to, well because of this, this then left faithful Jewish Christians open to all sorts of persecution by the city's authorities. So perhaps because of this then, some people were beginning to keep quiet about their faith. They were trimming their testimony, their witness. <coughs> but here you see, the faithful are encouraged. They're told that their names might be off the synagogue register, but that their names are engraved forever in the Lamb's book of life. That they might be insecure in this world, but that they are eternally secure in Christ. The third promise here runs on from this, and it's a promise of acknowledgement before God. Verse 5 it says, I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Now, this of course is a an echo, in a way, of the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 10, 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. Whoever denies me, and it goes on, etc., etc. And what this, I think, is designed to underline for us is that the challenge here to God's people in Sardis was, above all, about confessing and remaining faithful to the name of Jesus. That's what they were reminded of. And you know, that's the question that we in turn tonight, I think, have to ask of ourselves. Are we in our lives, are we in our church life, truly confessing and remaining faithful to his name? Is his glory and his honour what matters first, what comes first for us? Or are we ready at times to tone down what we believe and then what we say? Are we ready to keep our peace so that we can have peace in this world? Now, I want to say to you, this is a challenge, and this is going to be a growing challenge as our society moves further and further away from God. Because if we hold to biblical faith and biblical truth, the points of conflict with our society are going to increase. They're going to become more and more common and more and more serious. So the question is, 
Are we going to take a stand? Or are we going to shift our ground? Are we going to speak out for Christian and biblical truth? Or are we going to choose instead a diplomatic silence? And so are we, like Sardis, going to reach a point where although we might have the appearance of life, we might seem to be doing the right things, yet we're actually, we are far closer to being spiritually dead than alive. That's a question I think we've got to face up to and we've got to answer. We've got to do that individually. We've got to continually do that as a church. But you know, it would seem that the church in Sardis at this time actually did face up to this. Because in the second century, this church was still alive. And at that time, it, it produced a, a remarkable leader by the name of Melito. And he was a man famous for his prophetic gift, renowned as a writer, a number of whose works are still treasured and referred to, particularly by the scholars of today. And also, he is the first Christian recorded to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He led the first tour. But you see, all of this happened. All of this. This church kept on going. This church was able to produce outstanding leaders like this. Because this church, rather than taking offence as they so easily could have done, rather than hiding behind a sham of spiritual life, because this church was ready instead to answer real, deep, searching, spiritual questions of themselves. My prayer is that as a church, that we will always and continually have the courage to do the same. That we'll always be ready to question ourselves and see if we really are taking the stand that we should for the Lord. Let's come and pray together. Father, there are hard lessons sometimes to learn from some of these churches and there are times when the challenge is so very, very real. Especially when we think of this church here where they seem to have so many good things going on. There seem to be life about them and yet at their heart they were not taking a stand. They weren't living for your glory. Lord, we pray, help us to truly examine our lives. Help us to truly seek you and truly to seek to live for you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.